Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast helping wine students and wine enthusiasts alike to learn about all the wines of the world. I'm Matthew Gorn and I'm a WCT certified educator and in this podcast I explore different wine regions and different grape varieties and also interview producers from all around the world to explore the vast world of wine. So I'm with uh, Stephen Ott, um, an importer of Mexican wine, and we're going to talk about Mexico and its wines. An historic country in terms of wine production, the one that's definitely had many ups and downs. And so it's going to be interesting to um, hear where exactly Mexican wine is at right now. And I have four different wines, all from Mexico, which we're going to try as we um, talk about Mexican wine. But first of all, Stephen, can you um, just introduce yourself and your affinity with Mexican wine? Matthew, thank you so much for having me on. Um, like you mentioned, I'm, I'm Stephen Ott. I, uh, along with my wife, own a company called Nosa Imports, uh, which is a company that we founded focused on the, importing the wines of, of Mexico and also of Portugal. Yeah, and I, in, in terms of our, our sort of start in this business and the start in, in, in getting the company up and running, we, we've worked in the wine industry for a long time, sort of across levels. We were florissoms and, and uh, bar managers, corporate buyers, worked in distribution for a while, worked in production for a while. But basically, we're, we, we landed in a place where we felt the, the conversation globally about wine was um, limited, um, frankly, that we, were, we found ourselves being, being told the same stories about the same five, six places in the world that, that make beautiful wine, but that aren't the whole thing um, and that don't don't necessarily do everything that we think is important, which is essentially connecting people through through bottles of wine. Um, that wine is, is a sort of magical thing that that uh, connects people to each other, and then also connects people to the land. And, and I think that that's um, there were many sort of unshaded areas that we found that were were not necessarily getting getting uh, to be a central part of the conversation. And so we we decided that we wanted to get involved in that process. And so we, we landed on, on importing wines from, from Mexico and Portugal for, for various reasons. But, but spe- speaking specifically about Mexico, um, my, I'm, my family is, is from Mexico, from, from central Mexico, and I have sort of family members that are winemakers in, in the Valle de Guadalupe in, in Baja California. But realistically, we also thought that it was really important uh, just as a part of the story. It's, it's the oldest new world growing region in the world. Um, so outside of, of sort of the Middle East, the Mediterranean and, and you know, parts of parts of Europe, it, it's and North Africa, it's the it's the oldest New World growing region, basically, you know, they've been planting and, and making wine since 1523. So this really profound history, but that is was sort of actively stunted by by virtue of the sort of colonial structure and has really gone through a lot, like you said, a lot of ups and downs. So um, we're really excited about where it is now. It's in this sort of interesting juxtaposition of being at once tremendously historic by comparison to most places in the world for for making wine outside of outside of that that sort of cradle of wine and also brand new it's it's going through this renaissance right now where there's a lot of innovation a lot of experimentation and and folks really um seeing what the land does and and we're really excited about that as you mentioned lots of um history going back to the 1520s let's talk about mexico and its wine now and you mentioned the word renaissance. When would you say the renaissance started and where is it going? You know, I I would say, you know, there's there's outliers to that sort of question, right? Um, as as with anything that is so personal, um, that, you know, the relationship between farmers and their land and, and these these sort of long-held traditions, is, there's, there's folks that have been making wine for a long time continuously. Um, that said, I'd say probably the, the current iteration of, of kind of Mexican wine renaissance 
really happened in the the late 80s is when it really started to take off and and um a lot of that was centered around um the valley guadalupe specifically around um northern baja california uh, right outside of the city of ensenada that's really where sort of this new generation of winemaker intent on 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 making fine wine out of the region really really started to take hold and that's where a lot of these a lot of these folks started really, really working on it. Now it's spread to all over the country. There's, there's um, tons, you know, there's, there's a number of states that are making wine that are really beautiful and it's, and it's sort of shifting and changing. But in Baja California, for example, as of right now, there's, I think, somewhere between 150 and 170 wineries, which is, you know, by comparison, I was reading uh, the, uh, the Wines of North America, an edition from, from 2000 and two i think sort of a a reference book but it was there was a single page you know entry or half a page entry on mexican wine um in the entire you know wines of north america book but the observation that they made was that per capita consumption then uh, right around the millennium you know the the shift in the millennium was about was less than a glass per person per capita and looking at that now you know domestic consumption has increased by by almost 300 percent you know which is it's still less than you know, per capita consumption than in the United States or, or a lot of other places in the world, but that's a pretty tremendous shift as well. So we're we're excited to see that. Um, but yeah, sorry, that's a very very long answer to your question. But I think yeah, the, the late '80s was really where it, where it started to, to change to to come through this new, yeah. new new shift. Interesting that consumption is increasing. I mean, how would you describe the average Mexican wine consumer? Yeah, it's an interesting question. There's the average Mexican wine consumer in Mexico is. Um, increasingly veering towards a younger generation of consumer, um, which is unusual given the sort of global trends of wine consumption. Part of that is there's there's some, I would argue, some sort of latent cultural biases towards domestic produce, domestically produced wine. Um, there's the, the, the sort of consumption of imported wine historically since the colonial era has been really got a status symbol um, within, within Mexican culture. Um, yeah, and that's that can be a much longer discussion. But I, but I think um, it's fairly recent that there's a younger generation of, of consumer has really uh, latched on to to this this belief in in the quality of Mexican wine, and and also with kind of the exploding culinary scenes in in a lot of Mexico cities, um, it's it's kind of gone hand in hand with that process of um, you know younger younger consumers basically being really excited about the things that are coming out of their country, which is great. It, that set, and then you know, so that's that's domestic consumption within Mexico. Um, I would say, depending on who you talk to, um, <laughs> the other major consuming group um, for Mexican wine is uh, American tourists that come to Baja California, that are sort of touring around Mexico's wine regions, um, or or just Mexico in general, and and um, seeking it out out of curiosity, out of out of um, out of a, a sense of interest in this sort of burgeoning, burgeoning culture of wine in Mexico. But those are really the two two major consuming classes that we're seeing right now is is within Mexico. And then, you know, in the United States, it's 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 a whole different story, you know, but um, that's that's really what we're seeing right now. And it's exciting. We're really excited to see so many young, young folks in Mexico really, really taking it and, and running with it. Yeah, I find Mexico quite an interesting, fascinating country because it's quite hard to position in terms of wine, but also in other cultures as well. It's right next to the US, that's its neighboring country, can get overshadowed by the US. Baca California is an extension of California, or California is an extension of Baca California, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, And then you talk about the wine renaissance beginning in the 1980s, but lots and lots of history 
And so you could relate it to Chile or Argentina, which also go back to the 1500s, but really emerged internationally in the 80s and 90s. California itself only really emerged in the 70s and 80s, despite a long history also. So how do you position Mexican wine? Do you relate it to other things or do you just say, this is Mexico and this is how we're going to talk about it? It's an interesting question. I, I think it's important to frame it, you know, as, as with anything, right? Uh, it would be ideal to be able to talk about any any region of, of wine production sort of in abstraction or, or in, you know, in isolation. Um, but the truth is that's not really how, how it works. And it's important, especially if it's unfamiliar, to give people frame of reference for it. Um, the dynamic is different, though. I, so this it, it was the earliest place that started in, for, for colonial planting from the Spanish in the same way that the other South American colonies um, would have would have started planting theoretically. Um, you know, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, all of these all of these places had that earliest, you know, a unifying factor in terms of those earliest plantings. But truth be told, none of, basically none of those regions, maybe with the exception of Peru, is necessarily defined by, the, by those really early colonial planting structures. Most of it came uh, with other European immigrants coming uh, in the 19th century, in the in the 20th century. Um, and that's really where a lot of that culture, uh, as, it, as it then sort of emerged on the global scale, um, you know, came out in the, in the, like you said, in the eight, in seventies, eighties, um, that, that generation similarly, I mean, arguably the United States too, right? The, the California's plantings, the first ones were definitively, um, you know, Spanish missionaries coming from Mexico, planting the same time that they were planting Baja California, moving their way up the coast. So there's, there's continuity in history there, but again, it wasn't, it wasn't until, you know, later Italian immigrants and Russian immigrants and French immigrants came and, and, um, and really, sort of established the California growing regions as well. So it's Mexico's unique in that it it really has that early early colonial history, but it it it's missing that that middle part where it had the the influx of European uh, immigrants that, that brought with them their their very closely held viticultural traditions. And so I think part of the reason that it emerged later um, is by virtue of the fact that it was on the one hand sort of coming off of that very long Spanish history and then basically thrust in just directly into the world of sort of the globalized structure of wine where it wasn't necessarily tied to as, as much to cultural, you know, the cultural groups uh, of immigrants that were living in Mexico at the time that it was, it was really, you know, there, there are Chilean winemakers, there are Spanish winemakers, there are Russian winemakers, there are French winemakers, there are, you know, there, there are folks from all over the world that are making wine in in Mexico now. and, And part of that is that it's, it's such a recent renaissance. And so it's, it, it comes at it from a very global scale. And I think, so I think that's also part of why it's a little difficult to, to position because you don't necessarily have that, that very clear through line where you know that, you know, Mendoza, you know, planted, planted largely by Italian immigrants, partially with French varietals, but also with, with, you know, Bonarda and other Italian varietals. That's, that's not the same thing in Mexico. In Mexico, you have a really wide smattering of either very old Spanish, Spanish grapes or, um, a huge variety of international groups that just came, you know, came came out of the 80s. Yeah, it's really interesting the way you frame that or position Mexico is kind of missing that middle ground of immigration because, of, as you say, with Argentina and Chile and California, that 19th century, 20th century immigration is extremely important to the development of the wine industry. And of course, with Mexico, it's I don't know how to describe its relationship with Spain or its colonial relationship with Spain because um, Mexico is kind of the colony that Spain prized the most, but also is the one that it was most protective of. And 
vines were banned in Mexico in the late 1500s, right? So not that long after vines were first planted, mm-hmm. which also um, stalled the development of Mexican wine culture. Right. And yeah, this is that, that dynamic is really interesting, right? On the, and it's, it was the sort of um, polar opposite from where it started, right? Where in the, in the earliest part of the colonial period, not only was it, you know, not only was the, the viticultural um, sort of uh, development of Mexico encouraged, it was required. Um, you know, the, the 15, 1524, the Cortez, Hernan Cortez, who was the governor of Mexico at the time, for every hundred indigenous people that lived under their apartamento, a thousand Vitis vinifera vines had to be planted in the land that was that was divided to the conquistador. So it was, in terms of the rate of planting in those early years, it was, they were encouraging it aggressively. But again, the, the banning of, of viticulture outside of the church was was an economic decision on the part of colonial Spain at the time. It was uh, basically the the import, the the captive market of imported wine was being cut into by virtue of the fact that Mexico was producing a lot of wine that was very good. And so in an effort to pres- to sort of preserve the wine merchants of Spain, they they required that not, and actually not, not only in Mexico in, in all of New Spain at the time. So, so all of the places where, where Spain had colonized in the new world at the time, you know, no, with the exception of Peru, no one, no one was allowed to, to plant, um, wine grapes for, for personal consumption, for non-religious consumption. So th- that's another interesting dynamic too. I think, um, when you were sort of talking about where to position Mexico relative to those sort of historical threads and, and, um, I think the relationship between the church, the missions, the establishment of the missions um, sort of across Mexico by by first the Jesuits, then the Dominicans and the Franciscans and the planting of vines. That's that's really where a lot of the the, the con- continuous history lies, because they were the only ones that were allowed to continue to, to grow grapes for for religious purposes. But that's really where that, that viticultural history was preserved. Um, and you see, for example, in Casa Madero, in, in Coahuila, um, the oldest winery in North America that was founded in 1590, that winery was was established around a mission as well. Similarly, one of the wineries that we represent, Bolivia de Santo Tomas, they were founded around the mission de Santo Tomas, Mission de Santo Tomas Aquino, that was planted in the 1790s. So it's it, the, the, the places where you do see that really long thread of, of continuous history from the Spanish colonization to now are, are the ones that are associated with the missionaries um, Sort of bringing bringing grapes to different parts of Mexico. Right, so that's kind of um, an overview of Mexico's complicated wine history, and it's great that it's being reestablished. And I didn't realize there are 150 wineries in Baja California. It's a fair amount. Um, it is. It's, it's about 75 percent of total production in Mexico as of right now. And and up until recently, it was up until the the, the early 2000s, it was maybe 90 percent. But the the interesting thing now is that you're seeing that a lot of the the other regions in Mexico, particularly in central Mexico, are are exploding in terms of production now. It's really it's th- those are really the some of the growth areas. I mean, Baja's growing quite a lot as well, but there's interesting changes that are happening in the Bajio region and in in, in uh, Guanajuato, Querétaro, San Luis Potosí, Zacatecas, Aguascalientes. Well, let's talk about um, the different regions and the the geography of Mexico. So it's a big country, but let's just narrow it down to the different wine regions. And how would you summarize some of the differences between the regions and just the climate and styles of wine of different regions? Overarchingly, I think something that surprises people is just by virtue of, you know, being being south of the 30th parallel, there's 
the expectation it's there's surprise in general that Mexico has has wine production given how how close to the tropics it is but it's in general sort of across the board it's defined by its aridity so the the fact that it's not that there's limited water in a lot of these places um, is actually a, a huge benefit in terms of viticulture. It's it's um, and that's one of the reasons that there's so much wine that can be grown in, uh, kind of across the country. And that's that's a sort of unifying factor. That said, in terms of the way that it it sort of breaks down, um, Baja California, right right south of of California, uh, across the border there in that peninsula, the northern part of Baja California, and then also the state of Sonora. I would maybe clump into one one region, which yeah, those sort of the the north northwestern border border states um like i said that's where 75 percent of the wine in mexico comes from it is a, a mediterranean climate um that's deeply influenced by the pacific so not not unlike parts of california it has you know quite warm weather but and but it has some some shift in elevation but it, it, it really is largely influenced by the pacific and that's really the thing that gives it um the particular characteristics that, that make it super conducive for, for wine production. Um, and it's, be, it's beautiful. And it's in terms of defining the characteristics of it, you know, it's, um, it, it's very hot in the summer. Um, it can be quite cold in the winter. The coastal influence, the, the oceanic influence maintains a certain level of, of continuity in terms of the weather. So it's not maybe quite as hot as some of the, the other places um, at, a, at a similar latitude, but it's, um, yeah, it, it, it makes really expressive wines. There are also big diurnal shifts as well. So there's there's surprising levels of acidity, surprising levels of, of sort of freshness and, and um, kind of dynamic extraction and, and, and concentration in the grapes that are coming out of there, uh, which is one of the reasons that it's sort of known as, as Mexico's, uh, or it so early established itself as one of Mexico's premier sort of growing regions. Sonora as well, it's a similar dynamic, although diff- different, the coastal region of Sonora uh, the next state over, basically on the Sea of Cortez, in uh, in Caborca and then in Hermosillo, those two regions are are where they're growing uh, some some grapes as well. It's it's very small relative to 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 the total production, but it's it's a similar dynamic in terms of the way that it's influenced by the ocean and and uh, you know soil type and elevation are quite similar as well. Also very hot. The next region that you would maybe sort of moving from from west to east, there is a region called La Laguna. Um, which is the, the the winery that I mentioned before, um, Casa Madero, is based in this area. It's the Valle de Paras in Coahuila, um, another border state. It's on the southern end of this border state that's that's uh, that borders New Mexico and Texas, mostly Texas. And it is it, it, it's a fascinating place. It's it is really well established. Like I said, those those early plantings in the in the 1500s were were the things that that really established it. But in, but increasingly, uh, yeah, 1597 was when Casa Madero was founded. Uh, it also has about 5,000 feet in elevation. Um, so that the shift in elevation, despite the fact that it's quite a warm place in in a, in a quite an arid area. Um, the elevation really helps to to maintain the acidity as well, and it is yeah, it's a fascinating place. The other area, so these are these are sort of two areas: the Baja California, Coahuila, and, and Valle de Paras um, are are two major regions, and then the other one that I would sort of clump together is is what often is called the Bajio region of the Central Mexican Plateau, and so this is Central Mexico, north of Mexico City. The main areas that are um, sort of most prolific for production there are Guanajuato, the, the, the state of Guanajuato and the state of Querétaro, both of which have quite long histories of, of wine production, but that are, are really now um, going through a, a new renaissance where there's a ton of new wineries opening up. 
a lot of people reviving old plantings or or um, sort of finding finding areas that are really conducive to making beautiful beautiful wines. Interesting thing about this place is that it's it's it averages about sixty five hundred to to seven um, seven thousand feet above sea level uh, in in terms of elevation. So it's about a thousand feet above Denver um, in terms of elevation. It's it's quite high. And so in spite of the fact that it's so far south, it really has the the benefit of elevation to maintain um, maintain acidity and maintain maintain freshness in the grapes. Um, and it also helps with that diurnal shift because it does get quite hot during the day, but then it also cools down substantially at night. Uh, they also get more rain than a lot of other places that we've just talked about. Um, they get substantially more rain than Baja and substantially more rain than Coahuila. But it's it's fascinating. And there's, there's um, interesting sort of levels of exploration that are happening where sort of international wineries are coming in. Um, Freixene, the, the Spanish sparkling house, has had a, has had a winery in, in Querétaro for, for many years. Yeah, there's, there's all sorts of new plantings that are happening and people sort of exploring the terroir because it's, it's, uh, it's stunning. It's, it's um, yeah, a, a very striking place that I think is, is lending itself to really cool explorations and, and the potential for wine. All right, so I'm looking at a map of Mexico as you're talking. So just kind of traveling virtually through Mexico. And you're talking about quite geographically disparate regions in terms of locality and how far away they are from each other. And then you're talking about different levels of elevation and different sea influences. So that just gives an idea that Mexican wine isn't too easy to kind of sum up in one sentence. There's lots of different things going on. But the region that's certainly um, here in California, that if you're going to find Mexican wine, it is Baca, California. So can you just talk a little bit more about that region and why that has emerged as the leading, most known region? Um, I think part of it is the is this dynamic between, like I was mentioning before, the, the missionaries, um, sort of establishing that as a viticultural region early in the 1700s. Um, that that continued throughout, throughout Baja California's history. Um, the interesting thing about Baja is also that it's a, it's a state that has been markedly international um, always since its establishment. And it was, a, it was a later frontier state that was sort of established in Mexico and, and wasn't, wasn't terribly heavily populated other than the indigenous fo- folks that have lived there forever. But um, in terms of, in terms of um, sort of Spanish colonization and then Mexican colonization, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't really heavily populated until much, much later than other parts of Mexico. But that was an interesting dynamic because it brought various cultural groups uh, French immigrants, Russian immigrants, Italian immigrants, um, and then also the, the Spanish missionaries really, really established as, as, a, as a place for making wine early. And so historically, there were three major wineries in that area. The one is the oldest was, was Bodegas de Santo Tomas, um, this, this winery based around the mission that was commercially founded as a winery in 1888. But the, like I said, the vineyards were planted in the 1790s. Um, and then there were two other wineries. There was Domecq, um, the the sort of parent company for the large Spanish sherry production house. Um, they they jumped on and, and opened a fairly large winery there quite early. And then also uh, another winery called El Echeto. And these three, founded by Italian immigrants. But these these three wineries were huge. And, and the dynamic was such that for many years, there were many contract growers throughout the area. Farmers would, would grow grapes along with other crops that they were growing. They would sell them to these wineries. And the vast majority of the production was either for bulk wine that was sell, sold throughout Mexico or brandy production. And it wasn't until the, the 1980s um, where a gentleman named Hugo da Costa, who was a uh, formerly the, the head winemaker for, he, he worked for Bodegas de Santo Tomas for a while and then also worked for 
um, for Cheto, um, he basically, in seeing the, the dynamic that was established there, thought that, that Baja had more potential for making fine wine. And so he um, simultaneously did two things. He, he founded a winery, his own winery, called Casa de Piedra, uh, on, sold entirely on futures, which is wild that he was able to actually do that. He, he was years before his first vintage that he ever, you know, that he that he had already sold all of his wines. He's a he's a clever guy. He is a clever guy, and he's he's known as as the sort of the godfather of of Valle de Guadalupe. But he he established his winery um, and and really started focusing on making fine wine. And then he also founded um, a school called La Escuelita. The premise being that it was a, a, a sort of an incubator for winemakers, teaching them how to, fa teaching farmers and growers how to how to make wine out of out of the grapes that they were already growing. And so, through out of basically through his, the introduction of his efforts, and then also another gentleman named Camilo Magoni, who was um, formerly the the head winemaker for many years at Lechetto, and then split off to found his own winery. These two gentlemen really kind of uh, started the the trend of, of making fine wine of really of really focusing on making wines of, of, of exceptional quality out of Baja and and um, from there it's cascaded like I said there's now you know 150 plus plus wineries in the area the vast majority of them small independent wineries that are that are really making some beautiful things but I think that's sort of the dynamic of history that established it in that way on top of that the coastal influence is unique right um, in the same way that um, that various parts of California are are defined by that and really um, have that to contribute to the quality of the wines that come out of it. I'd say that Baja is exactly the same. This confluence of, of sort of elevation, Mediterranean climate, and the ocean, the, the oceanic influence are the things that really make it um, stunning and, and really have sort of established as the preeminent winemaking region in Mexico up until this point. Yeah, I love looking at the region on a map because it's a very distinctive peninsula. It's almost like a mini reverse Italy. Uh, a little boot, and it is surrounded by water on both sides. It's not just the Pacific Ocean that's influencing the the climate. Um, so it's a little, bit, a little bit different from California in that respect, that there's water on both sides. Yeah, the Sea of Cortez does have influence. Um, I, I will say that, the, that said, the majority of production for, for viticulture is clustered towards the, the, the east or the, the western edge of the peninsula. So it is it is more centered around the Pacific side, but it's yeah, but there's influence from both both sides, definitely. So let's um, go through the wines, which um, I have. And you mentioned Sherry briefly there, and Demek being one of the earlier producers. One of the wines that I've been sent is from Palomino, the Sherry grape variety uh, by JC Bravo. Can you talk about that wine a little bit? It's only 11.5% alcohol as well, which is not what I was expecting from a Mexican wine. Yeah, you don't always see that for sure. But yeah, so this is this is a wine, this is 100% Palomino Fino from a winemaker named Juan Carlos Bravo. So the winery is called JC Bravo. And this wine's really interesting. So I, I mentioned La Escuelita before in Hugo da Costa. Juan Carlos was one of his first students. And basically the, the dynamic of this winery is really interesting. He was... His grandparents moved to Baja in the in the late 30s, early 40s, and he his grandparents and his and his parents, along with him, planted their their vineyards in the early 1940s. Um, and they were contract growers originally for Santo Tomas. Then they grew for Cheto, then they grew for Dom, you know for Domec for a while. Um, it was very much the structure historically for a long time. The issue was that basically when when the 1980s arrived with the advent of sort of the demand for international varietals across the board where everyone was planting Chardonnay, everyone was planting Cabernet Sauvignon, and also with some of the economic downturns that were happening in Mexico at the time, um, 
there was this really tough position where contract growers were basically being encouraged to either replant varietals that were international, uh, which would have been a, a, a challenge um, given given the way that all that, all that works out, uh, or that they, they basically were, were having their contracts cut. And so Juan Carlos, for, for a number of years, didn't really have any recourse. He didn't want to pull out his vineyards. He didn't want to regraft other varietals into what he had. And so he, he essentially, through the help of, of Hugo da Costa, learned from nowhere as a farmer who didn't, by his own admission, didn't drink wine, uh, learned how to make wine. He, he, he was taught and he, he essentially taught himself um, and the reason that his his winery is important, and the reason that we're really uh, invested in it, is that he's he is of of those 150 wineries that were established in Baja. His is the only one that was originally uh, established by someone who was born and raised in the Valle de Guadalupe. He was born in the Valle de Guadalupe, and he he was like I said, he was a grower. He had this dynamic. He was part of the community that was that was sort of feeding these larger wineries for a long time. But he he struck out on his own. And decided to make these vineyards turn into some a project that was really personal. Um, the the cool thing about it is also they are because they're so old, um, they're unique because they're they're uh, dry farmed bush vines. They're 100% dry farmed, which is super unusual for the area. At this point, it would be impossible probably to 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 dry farm vineyards in the in the region because the there's been a, a sustained drought over a long period of time. And also the aquifer has dropped pretty substantially, but because these vineyards were planted in the, in the 1940s, these, you know, 70 plus year old vines have really deep root, root systems that tap into the, to the water table um, and, and are super vigorous and sustain themselves on very little, little rainwater. So the two grapes that they, they have planted, one is Palomino and then one is Carignan. And those are the only two wines he makes. He, he is, he and his family are the only people that do 100% of the work. So it's six people that do everything from vineyard management and harvest to all of the production, to labeling, bottling, commercial sales, everything else. Uh, it's very much a family operation, but he's it's 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 pretty special. And so this is this wine is uh, now one of the three wines that he makes. It's it's 100% uh, Palomino Fino. Uh, it's non-oxidative, so it's it's it. Some of those nutty kind of characteristics are actually just things that are coming out of the out of the grape itself. These are some of the early plantings in the area. These cuttings are, you know, the Palomino was brought by the missionaries in the 1700s to the area. It was really prolific, especially for brandy production. And so a lot of the a lot of the contract growers had a lot of Palomino planted. But these are unique. These are dry farm Palomino vines that have that have been in the ground. Super minimal intervention. No no intervention in the vineyard. No no chemicals added across the board. Um, but yeah, I think it's a really expressive wine, and it's 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 unusual, right? It's a it has it's intense. It has a very sort of nutty green quality. There's there's some citric components that are pretty pretty pronounced, but but it's a story too. It's it's very much a part of this this individual's tie to the land that he he grew up on. And it's from 2018 as well, but still has um, a lot of freshness to it. And I love the fact he's working with Palomino and Carignan. It's the kind of thing I would do, but not necessarily a commercial, a definite, sure thing. And I do have the Carignan as well. Can you talk a little bit about the Carignan? Of course. I, I think this wine is really pretty special, honestly. Um, so the Carignan is is the other... He, he make, he's now making a rosé. So there's a third wine in his portfolio uh, that's that's also the Carignan, but uh, that's not that he deems you know, not, not ideal for the, this expression that he's making. But I think this one speaks to how, how incredible it is that he came from 
by his own admission, only ever drinking beer, um, you know, and growing grapes for other for 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 big wineries to to becoming a winemaker. It's 100% Carignan, like I said, dry farm bush vines. So they're very, the concentration's really intense. They're very expressive, old vines. He does open top fermentation and concrete. So he's doing, you know, a 75 year old dude on a, on a ladder with a stick doing punch downs by himself, um, you know, doing these, doing this native yeast fermentation and concrete. And it's, it's a long fermentation, long maceration. Then he's, he's transferring into barrel. He's doing, you know, all, all in, second use or, or to neutral French oak where there's two years in, uh, almost, I think 18 months to two years in barrel. And then he holds it back in bottle for three to five years, depending on the vintage. So it's, it's amazing to me that this, this guy who essentially taught himself how to make wine, uh, taught himself how to appreciate wine is making an old vine Carignan with six. I mean, this is 2016. That's current vintage. So he's he's doing a, a six to seven year vision of what the wine is going to be. And I think that it speaks to the fact that he's so intimately uh, involved with his, the land, right? He's so int- intimately involved with these vineyards. He knows, he knows these grapes. He knows these vines. Uh, he grew up around them. Uh, and it's sort of, this wine to me is like his, is sort of uh, his love letter to the place that he grew up. It's, it's, um, I think it's really special. Another an interesting thing that sort of happens with it because of that sort of the, the, the old vine, uh, dry farming with all that concentration and, and also with the extended, extended bottle aging as well. The fruit characteristic is, is, is lovely and definitely present, but I also get a red flower character, like a dried red flower characteristic. It's really pronounced. Uh, I, are you familiar with hi, like hibiscus flower tea? Yeah. That's a very pronounced pronounced flavor that I get in the in the wine, and I it's very nostalgic for me. But I I, uh, I like it. Yeah, we all have our personal connections in terms of uh, smells and flavors. And um, what I like about this wine is that there's a dustiness to it, which I definitely associate with Carignan in general. But something that I would expect from Mexico, that arid heat that you've been talking about, kind of really comes through in the wine. And I think that slightly the fact that it's slightly older, 2016, just kind of elevates that kind of um, dry feel to it, which I really like. Um, so that's Palomino and Carignan. So maybe some unusual grape varieties or unexpected grape varieties to be planted in Mexico. What are the general plantings of grape varieties in Mexico? Are there any conclusions about what works best? Uh, conclusions, maybe not. Um, there's, there, and, it, and it's variable, you know, like I said, with my very long uh, discussion about the various places that, that grow wines, uh, it, it changes very much place, place to place. Cabernet and, and Chardonnay are, are the most planted, but there's also a substantial planting of Tempranillo. Carignan is actually surprisingly common grape in terms of the breakdown of it. There's also, um, in terms of whites, something that I'm really, I would encourage folks to keep an eye on. There's a, there's a decent amount of Chenin Blanc that's planted and I will say the Chenin Blancs that are coming out of out of Baja and 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 out of some of the other regions as well are are really exceptional. They're really unique. They're they're very expressive. They're not ne- nearly as sort of palate coning and and lanolin focused as maybe some of the Loire Valley Chenins that you you might uh, you might encounter, um, and also maybe not quite as as citrus driven or as as kind of astringent as you sometimes get in in South Africa. It's unique. It's a it, it it's a, a very very unusual expression that comes out of the particular terroir of Mexico, and I, I it's something to keep an eye on. Similarly, I'd say with with the Tempranillo. Similarly, I'd say with with Carignan. 
Um, there's some other varietals that are commonly planted. There was a big influx of Italian grapes. So there's uh, a lot of Nebbiolo. There's a decent amount of Zinfandel, like Primitivo Zinfandel. There's also uh, in in uh, in Baja, there's a Nebbiolo de Baja, the, a regional variation of, of Nebbiolo that, or that's labeled Nebbiolo, um, which isn't genetically. There, it's, it's definitively determined that it's not a descendant of Nebbiolo, but it was sort of mischaracterizes that and has, but it's, it's unique. It's a, it's an unusual genetic descendant of, of a, I think a Lambrusco grape, but, and it's, it's much heavier bodied, much more extractive. Um, and there's a lot of expressions of, of folks that are making that, that wine or that grape in, in Baja that are, that are worth looking into. But yeah. And then the other, the other thing that I would really maybe f- focus on, um, is, there's a, a huge planting of, and, it, and it's increasingly becoming popular again, is Mission, uh, also known as Pais. It's maybe the closest thing, that, arguably the closest thing that you would come to uh, in terms of an indigenous grape in Mexico. It was, it, it's, it's not, but it's, it was one of the earliest missionary grapes that were brought over, descendant from a, a Spanish varietal called Listian Preto, um, and has, you know, it was, it was the first grape that was planted in California by Dominican missionaries coming from Mexico. Um, but it was, it spread across basically with the missionaries expanding across Mexico. And it's really, it's, it's light bodied. Uh, usually it's, you know, the extraction isn't very, very high. It has some herbal qualities to it. Um, a lot of fruit, really interesting wine, um, that I would encourage, encourage folks to look at. My regular listeners will know that I did a, an interview with Amanda Barnes, who wrote, who wrote this wine guide to South America. And we talked about Pais and Criola Chica quite a lot in that episode and briefly mentioned a mission in California and Mexico. I'd definitely like to try some more and do a big comparative tasting of this kind of Pan-American grape variety, which has been overlooked, but still persists. Yeah. And it's, there's such a, a limited planting that's remaining in Spain at this point. Um, that it really has sort of has shifted into one of those things that I think might be a defining characteristic of, of you know, new world wines um, in the Americas. And that people are making sparklings out of it. People are making, you know, light bodied reds. People are making some heavier bodied reds, using it in blends. It's it's super dynamic, but it's, uh, it's a cool grape. So we do have uh, two other wines to talk about. Uh, one is Cabernet Sauvignon, and we'll finish with that one, more of an international, internationally recognized style. But the other one is a uh, white wine, which is a blend of um, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, and Semillon. So another unexpected wine, maybe in its blend components. Can you talk about this wine a little bit? Yeah. Um, so this is we're excited about this one for a variety of reasons, but it's it's uh, also giving you a sense of some of the other regions in Mexico. This one is from Guanajuato. So this is from a winery called Vinido San Miguel, from right outside of San Miguel de Allende. Um, so the the Valle de Independencia is the the name of this this valley where it's grown, um, and this winery is a fairly new project. It was a, a, a Mexican Mexican French family that also co-owned a, a winery in Italy um, in, in Tuscany. They were they were interested in, in in pretty actively reviving some of the viticultural heritage of this region, and so they they sought it you know with the the winemaking expertise that they have from their other other work they they did some scouting and, and determined that this was going to be a really a really fruitful area to be planting and so this is in central mexico this is uh in that in that bajillo region of the central mexican plateau so this is 
probably 6,500 6, feet above sea level, so kind of rolling green hills, still still fairly dry, but not nearly as dry as the northern part of the country. And I think it's interesting. The Sauvignon Blanc is maybe le- substantially less defined by its pyrazines than you would see in in other other regions. It's not nearly as green. Um, it's it's maybe a little bit more tropical and rounded. The the semillon also similarly is not nearly as sort of weighty and and uh, palate coating as you might expect. Nor is the chardonnay. The chardonnay um, and this is an interesting thing in Mexico in general. In general, the chardonnay tends to be, you know, while still a, a fairly big white grape, it's it's marked more by its its uh, its citric qualities, its freshness, its its um, sort of lighter lighter greener flavors as you know as compared to some of the other stuff that you would you would maybe get from it. And so, this wine is interesting. It's it's um, it's an unusual blend um, that sees a substantial amount of oak. It's about nine months in oak, and so it's it's intended as a pretty structured wine. Um, Sort of designed the, the the winery also has a as a fairly fairly high end restaurant um, built into it as well that's that's quite popular and so they make a lot of wine with the intention of sort of pairing it with with various various culinary dishes but yeah I, I think this wine is really fascinating and um, it's it's ample right it's a it's a it's not a small wine but it's uh, and and you you definitely get the presence of oak on it but I don't think it's overpowering um, and you still get a lot of freshness and brightness from the from those varietals. I, and I think it's a good expression of, of what this part of central Mexico can do as well. Thank you for sending a wine from a Mexican region I knew nothing about, so I've definitely been educated myself. And I think you've described the wine pretty well, those different components from the grape varieties. I think you do sense that it's Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon and Chardonnay, but definitely quite distinctive and not quite the same as maybe other regions. And there is a weight to the wine, but it is also very fresh as well. So quite an interesting wine to try. And then finally... The Cabernet Sauvignon, which is from Santo Tomas, a wine a producer that you've already mentioned. Uh, can you talk about this wine? Yeah, I think, you know, to your point about um, things that are familiar but uh, but quite distinct, I think this is a great example of that. This is the, these are this is a uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, 100% Cabernet Sauvignon from, from the Valle de Guadalupe. Well, from planted both in the Valle de Santo Tomas and the Valle de Guadalupe. Um, all estate from Bodegas de Santo Tomas. Um, these are, like I said, this is the oldest winery in Baja, um, founded commercially in, the, in 1888, but planted in the 1790s. The Cabernet for this this particular wine was interestingly brought much later in the history of the winery. Um, there was a brief period where Dmitry Chelichev, Andrei Chelichev's son, um, was the technical director and winemaker for this winery, for Mas. And so he, he was the first one that actually brought cuttings from Napa to Baja and and start and planted these first Cabernet vineyards uh, in this winery, which is interesting. There's a there's sort of a, a a a circle of history where on the one hand, this this winery and this this mission uh, was one of the jumping off points for the the original plantings of of mission grapes, mission grapes in California. Uh, so on the one hand, you know. This this winery brought grapes to California. It's interesting that later on in its history, you know, California grapes were brought back to the winery and, and used to make this wine. But it's it's I think, like I said, really marked by the fact that it's a familiar varietal that is completely different in this area. Um, it's a it's a typical like a, the the mass the the time for maceration and the and the production method is not unusual it's it's pretty typical for for wines of the style um 
but it's still, it comes across as a much lighter bodied Cabernet than you would maybe get in, uh, you know, across the Northern border and in, in, in sort of Southern California uh, expressions that from, from the same grape that you're getting. It's, it's, uh, it's fresh, it's bright. It's a lot of dried strawberries for me. Um, there's, there's almost, there's some more of that dustiness as well that I, I get on this wine. And I think it's really interesting. It's, it's, uh, six to eight months in, in French Oak and, um, uh, from the, the classic line of this winery, but I think it's a pretty great expression of, of not only what the, the potential for this winery and what, and what it does, but also how different um, these varietals behave in Mexico and how unique the terroir is for, for making really expressive wines that are familiar, but unlike anything that you, you see in other places as well. Yeah, so you mentioned the, the dustiness to it. I definitely get that dusty, dry, tannic uh, feel to it, similar to the Carignan. So maybe that's... Um... A common feature of Mexican reds, um, but if I was tasting this blind, I would go with Italy. That's it, it tastes quite Italian. It's got that kind of sour cherry tomato feel to it. It's very slightly herbaceous, but not too much. But that really dry, dusty, tannic nature just feels uh, quite Italian. And there's an underlying salinity that's it's not overpowering, but I think that's um, you you perceive it on on actually on a lot of Mexican wines actually, but but this one as well. I. I uh... I think it's nice. It's nice to have. A, it's a little savory. It's not overpoweringly tannic. It's it's not overly extracted. It's, uh, yeah. And the winemaker, her her name's Cristina Pino. Uh, this winery was the first winery in Mexico to 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 hire a, a female enologist in in the back in the nineties. And and uh, it, they've had a female enologist. It was Laura Zamora was the first one, and now Cristina Pino is the is her successor, and she's amazing. Um, Spanish Mexican sort of dual citizen, but she's she's. She's really impressive, and, and I think she's she's moving the winery even more so towards towards really um, really impressive expressions. Great, well, that's a really good overview of Mexico. We've tried four very different wines from Palomino, the blend of Chardonnay, Semillon, and Sauvignon Blanc, Carignan, Cabernet Sauvignon. So, giving an impression of the diversity of Mexican wine, which I don't think is fully appreciated yet, and maybe that's because Mexico winemakers are still learning about the different regions and what. Uh, they are capable of. So definitely a country and its many regions to continue to explore. I think it's going to develop in interesting ways. It's definitely not a finished product, but that's what makes it exciting. We're not just tasting something that's done and dusted, something that's going to evolve into the future. Um, any final observations on Mexico? Where do you see it in the future? Where do you see it developing? Uh, I think it's going to, it's sort of an interesting time. Um, there's been there's been a big period of exploration, which I think has been really important um, and kind of an explosion in terms of the development of both the tourism and, and, and plantings. I think that there is going to have to be a reckoning in terms of the ecological sustainability in certain areas uh, of, of the way that that's approached. And, and I think increasingly you're finding a lot of, a lot of folks are, are being very conscious of that and sort of pioneering uh, ways to be very conscious of, of, making this this world and making these wines sustainable in the long term but i think that there's i think there's only going to be growth um i think realistically the you know as much as baja california is going to continue to to produce exceptional wines and 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 a lot of those wineries are really going to grow into their own in a, in a substantial way i also think that the development of central mexico as a as a really viable region for making exceptional wine is is can't be understated can't be overstated it's it's um it's going to change a lot, and I, I'm, I'm excited to be part of it. Excited to be telling these stories because these folks are doing impressive work um, and and have stories that are worth telling. And you mentioned earlier that um, 
the Mexican food scene has really helped um, grow the wine culture as well. Though I'd say Mexican food can be quite difficult to pair with wine. Do you have any kind of food pairings that you'd recommend with Mexican wine? That's a hard thing to just by by virtue of the fact that it's they're so diverse and so different. It's a that's categorically a hard thing to do. Um, but I I think you know there's the, a, you know a lot of exploration that's being done in that regard. Um, there's you know. <laughs> The I, I while I understand that you know the spiciness or, or some of the the more intense flavors of Mexican food can be harder to classically to pair with with some some wines. The truth is, a lot of the wines that are coming out of Mexico are, are uh, by their nature pretty well suited for for pairing with Mexican food and worth exploring in that regard. I think Santo Tomas has a variety of, of uh, recommendations on the back of their bottles for um, for pairings as well. But for the Carignan, a common a common pairing is borrego. There's the roasted roasted sheep, um, like mutton and and uh, or or goat is is a beautiful sort of uh, classic pairing in the area. Um, the with the whites with the palomino, there's it would it would stand up really well to to some oilier sports fish sport fish maybe like a swordfish or or some stuff that has maybe a little bit more intense flavor and uh, with maybe some acidity in the dish as well. So ceviches are, are a good are a good choice there too. Um, yeah, it's it's just worth exploring. Realistically, it's it's a. Uh, I think by virtue of how surprising a lot of the flavors of Mexican wine can be, um, that's that's the beauty in the pairing in the in the potential for pairing as well is that there's a chance to to really explore the um, the potential that that might not be, you know, as classically defined as some some places that like you said are done and dusted. It's a uh, it's a, it's a little more dynamic uh, just by its nature. And I'm looking at the back of the Santo Tomas Cabernet Sauvignon and it says um, pairing harmony tenderloin with plum sauce or marinated grilled fish, which I think seem pretty sensible recommendations. <laughs> That's Mexican wine, so I definitely encourage listeners to try and find some Mexican wine and try them. Um, as we've discussed, definitely quite diverse and emerging. And so lots of different experiences to be had. And of course, because Mexican food itself is quite diverse, I definitely think that's a good way of kind of promoting the wines in relation to Mexican culture and Mexican food, uh, because wine is always part of that in general. So thank you, Stephen, for joining me. That's been really educational. I've learned a lot about Mexican wine and just really excited to see um, how the country is going to develop its wine culture. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk about it.